stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As per usual, my name is Kingsley Kipur, and I'm going to be with you for the next hour. Feeling really good to be back. I feel like it's been quite a while since since we've been sitting in this chair. Joined as usual by my my partner in crime, Greg Nicholson. How are you doing? Um, I'm well, thank you. Um, yeah, this week is as, as much as we're excited to be back. It's a bit of a, a bit of a somber show because, uh, as, as some people may know, this is the the, the anniversary of of what's been called the Marikana massacre, where on the 16th of August in 2012, um, we saw we witnessed 34 people being shot by the South African Police Service in a week where another 10 people had died, which brought the toll count in a couple of days to to 44 people being killed. Um, and after that, we, we, we witnessed, you know, continuous testimonies of what actually happened there. Um, some from experts, some from people who live in Marikana, some from fellow mine workers. And it really brought the spotlight on, on the plight of a sector that's been the backbone. A lot of people would say there's no South Africa without mining is a common theme. People say, well, what's been the backbone of the country and the economy for, for, for decades. And, and taking a really close look about what, what the plight of the people who, who are the backbone of the backbone, the people who hold up the, the this this really important economy. Um, and we had testimonies of people, you know, working in, in terrible conditions, working very long hours, working underground, working in, in places where they can't breathe correctly, where they can't stand correctly, where they're getting diseases, where they're not being taken care of. Um, and then the wider issues around, around, around service provision, around housing, um, and and this led the way to the commission that ran for about two years that investigated and was supposed to tell us what what happened in Marikana and why. So why why did was there a situation where thirty four people were killed on this day and forty four people were killed during that week? What are the wider circumstances in the sector? What are the specific circumstances um, on that on that couple of days and on that day that led to to something that I th- I think we can all agree in South Africa we never thought we'd witness in a post post-apartheid South Africa of people getting unarmed people getting killed um, so on this day we, we, we sit back and, and sort of just remember that day and look back at what's happened since um, we know the commission sat for a while it had its findings and there's been some some proceedings that led on from that some rip, some in terms of the policing side so what does public order policing look like what should it look like what was done wrong um, can, uh, can the police be held responsible in terms of that um, and some in terms of the, the, the housing and the, and the, the, what is the responsibility of the, of, of, of Lonmin, the specific company, um, where these mine workers worked in terms of housing and so on. So on this, on this show, we're just going to be looking back at these. Um, so one, we're going to be speaking to somebody from Socioeconomic Rights Institute of South Africa, Seri, uh, who are representatives of the families of the deceased, deceased mine workers and, and hearing from them as representatives of what, what, what the families are saying. What are they still expect, expecting from further proceedings? Um, given that it's been so long and, and, and what, what, what's the expectation? Um, also looking at a, a recent report that's been released in terms of housing and what, what lawnmen had committed to doing in terms of housing provision um what's been done so far and what what's to follow and then last we'll be talking about this really interesting and important book um called the spirit of marikana the rise of the insurgent trade unionism in south africa so we'll be chatting to the to the author luke sinwell um 
to dig into that and really uh, further investigate where exactly some of these these protests started, some of these figures, something like 12,500, a figure that sort of we all know as being one of the central demands from the mine workers. Where did that come from? Who started that? Um, so we've got a bunch of questions, and I'm really, really excited for this one. I'm just sort of waiting to get somebody from Social Network Rights Institute on the phone, Seri. Um, but um, in the meanwhile, um, we've been getting some really, really interesting Feedback and engagement from Twitter. Um, so we've got as 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 a giveaway of the book. Um, you shouldn't tell anyone, but we've got a giveaway. Um, so in terms of the questions we're getting, please give me, please keep sending through your questions and comments. And and Greg, I think we're getting some really cool questions over there. Yeah, we have particularly um, at only only one Heather has been sending us some great questions. Just just the last one she sent in is uh, justice. Justice delayed is justice denied. For how long will black people pay the price for selfish free free market capitalism? There's a few other people who are um, blaming the massacre on the on the link between um, the government and and other guys. And and yeah, I think it's and um, important to keep on engaging on this issue. Um, I think also this in the context of the recent political in the context of the of the recent political situation. Um, I think there's been a big Big questions around whether whether regular and not regular, I'd say rural South Africans, uh, a lot of working class South Africans and a lot of these industries, whether they're still front and center of national policy. And I think something like when Marikana comes in in the in the context of the recent elections, um, yeah, there's 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 a few questions about that. So when Heather asks whether you know a tough question like that, that's that's very scathing. I think that echoes the sentiment of of quite a lot of people around the country of 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 are we still the focus of our politicians? Are we still focus of pol- of policy design? Are we still the focus of of our leaders? And I think I think it's not misplaced that a lot of people think. It's not misplaced to assume that a lot of people feel that they've been sold out or, or left behind or forgotten. Yeah, well, I think it's if you look at sort of some of the election results, particularly coming from areas like Rustenburg, Muddy Bang, Northwest, um, the the you see the the ANC has sort of suffered suffered losses from that. Um, the ANC has suffered losses from that um, issue, and and um, yeah, I think you're right that this this stuff is coming back to. You know, to haunt them. Yeah, I mean, just quickly, I mean, we haven't talked about the, the, the regular politics stuff in a while, and a lot of people have been tweeting us saying, guys, we want to hear about coalitions and about the, 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 you know, the, the, the political, the political space. So I think we're good. Okay. Sorry. Sorry to cut myself off, but we're just going to switch to the call that we were waiting to get. Um, so on the line, we'll be speaking to a representative from SERI, that's Socioeconomic Rights Institute of South Africa. Uh, that's Nadira Munshi. She's a research fellow at SERI and she's worked as part of a legal teams, uh, at the Marikana Commission of, of Inquiry of the Families of the Deceased Mine Workers. I um, just want to make sure the line is clear. Uh, Nadira, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear. Okay, wonderful. I can hear now. Um, um, so my first question really is, I mean, we really wanted to start this show by really centering uh, the people and really centering the, the, the families of the deceased mine workers. Um, so I'm, I'm curious that as Seri and, and, and as representatives of, of these families, how would you describe the, their, their, their sort of point of view and their state sort of four years on from the original shootings and, and, and also now, a while since, I think just over a year since the, the report from the Falam Commission was, was released. How, how would you describe, uh, their point of view on this? Okay. So, firstly, I'm going to apologize for the noise. Um, I'm at the commemoration and this is the quietest part I could find. Um, I mean, no need so, to apologize. That's, that's exactly where you should be. So I'm, I'm glad you're there. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, so from the family's point of view, I mean, it's four years on since the commission started and since the massacre. Um, they've received absolutely no income um, or no compensation, um, rather. Um, they've, so they've not, literally got nothing from the state. Um, they feel, I think we can, we can quite say the family feels a bit abandoned by the state. They were extremely disappointed, for example, that the report came out last year, but they were given no prior warning mm. um, that the report would be coming out um, during this release, even though they had asked for notice. Um, and today, last year, at the end of last year, the presidency announced that they would be considering an adjudicated process and invited the legal teams at the beginning of this year to a meeting. We've had a number of questions related to that process. Um, We'll be still waiting to hear back from the state. We've also asked for an apology in, for the massacre and, and for the deaths of the families. And we have no answer from the state as to whether they would apologize. Um, the situation is quite upsetting. Many of the widows or the children of the deceased mine workers are now working at Lonman Mine. Um, Lonman um, allowed them to send someone... Because often when someone dies in the mine, the family is allowed to send someone to replace that person so as to not lose that income. Mm. But this puts a lot of the women in a difficult position because they have to leave their children in boarding schools. Um, there's no one at home to look after their kids. Um, they now working as cleaners on the mine. Some are working underground. It's hard physical labor. And um, it's, it's kind of ironic that they have now had to replace their loved ones um, hmm. to earn a living. Um, yeah. Now, Nadira, um, we we sort of saw when the commission was coming to a close and throughout the commission that one of the key issues, like you're mentioning, for the family members is this issue of compensation. It's, hmm. it's, it's, it's not only sort of a part of the, the justice process, but also helps them survive so they don't have to go and leave their families in, in wherever yeah. they're from. Um, where are we at with those talks? Is anything happening? So, like I said, we're waiting for the state to answer us in relation to some of the questions about the adjudicated process. But at in the same time, we kind of locked into the legal process. Um, so, despite knowing, for example, that the families um, suffered emotional loss, they suffered grief. Um, some one of the widows miscarried. Um, the family suffered. A, it was quite traumatic in itself. But we need to prove this in the court of law, and so. So this requires um, like hundreds and thousands of rands being spent on experts. So the families are going to have to go to psychologists. Um, and it's both transport costs because they have to travel long distance. You'll remember that some of the families are from Lesotho, Swaziland, and from rural Eastern Cape. Um, we also are in consultation with um, around the with experts around the compensation. Um, so the uh, just getting speaking to actuaries, and again, that costs a lot of money. So, a lot of money is currently being spent in the process. Um, for uh, and I guess if we hear nothing from the state, then we'd have to go to court. So, uh, essentially, at this stage, it sort of looks like that. Um the discussions that the President Jacob Zuma announced would, would take place and to try to resolve this issue speedily um, have fallen apart. And, and it looks like this this is on track to, to be fought out in court. Sorry, can you say the last bit again? Oh, I, I was saying it looks like this issue is going to go back to court, am I right? I mean, it's likely, yeah. Um, we've been 
quite like patient trying to wait for the state, um, um, writing them letters, um, and waiting for a response. So, yeah, I mean, as soon as I think we have finalized um, our side, just the processes that are outlined with the expert, then, yeah, we have, we have to pursue a court process. Mm-hmm. But it has been four years, as you said, um, and the families are suffering, and something needs to be done. Now another another issue that came out of um, the Farlam report on, on from the Marikana Commission is the recommendation to investigate certain police officers and the police um, with the prospect of laying criminal charges on them. But we haven't yet seen that. And although there's sort of talk that there are there are investigations, how do the family feel about that prote- uh, process? That four years later, not a single police officer has been arrested, and and we're still waiting. I think they're angry, um, upset, um, extremely disappointed. No one's been held accountable. Um, the Farlem Commission at least um, found that there was no self-defense, um, that there was a disproportionate use of uh, force, and that the policing um, operation lacked command and control on the part of the police. So to not have air foyers on any proper investigation, anyone charged, they do feel quite aggrieved by it. Um, but our, our hands are kind of tied in that process. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is up to the NPA to take it forward. Um, some of the families would like to pursue it. Um, but, I mean, yeah, it's a difficult one. Um, but also, I mean, it's really like the task team, uh, one of the recommendations for task team in relation to public order to police is to be set up. And the police did announce that their task team would go ahead, but there's been no sort of consultation as to who, how, the, what is the mandate for the proper manager of the task team? How, how are they going to conduct the investigation? Is there any space for recommend, for, um, like submissions to be made, um, by the family or by any other, um, interested person in making submissions to the police, to the task team and public order police? So, there's a number of processes that should be ongoing, um, but there's really no communication. Um, and it's quite, it's quite disheartening, um, especially because it was the police, it was the state um, that killed the mine workers of Marika 1912. Now, uh, Nadira, before we let you go, you're obviously up there in Marikana today at the commemoration. What's, sure. the, what's the mood up there like? Is this, is this issue still very emotional and painful for the community of Marikana and the mine workers, or...? Or has it, yeah. has it somewhat dissipated? Look, I think the difficulty with today is really that it is a work day, it's Tuesday, and so it was negotiated. Um, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to negotiate, but they did manage to get some of the mine workers free. So unlike a weekend, it's not as cool, but I think that the commemoration is quite... I mean, there are not a number of people here. Um, the families are here. I think it's always going to be emotional. It's always going to be hard. Um... And at least, I think, four years on, they know that people are still commemorating the lives of their loved ones um, and that are, are still keeping the issue of Marikana alive. Um, but, yeah, this day is quite, it's always quite hard for the family. Um, we can only imagine. Um, sorry, did I cut you off? You were saying something? Sorry? Sorry, I think I cut you off. Were you saying something? No, no, I'm fine. Okay, perfect. Nadira, thank you so much for making time for us. I know things are busy up there. Please keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Okay, perfect. Um, I mean, Greg, you asked about the 
what the mood or the emotion might be like uh, up there in Marikana. And I, um, I think yesterday I was watching a video by Seri about the, the widows of Marikana. And, and there was this quote about we still see the mountain when we're going when we're going to the office, we're going to the work, we're going to work, we're going to the mines, we're going home. We still see the mountain, and we always remember what happened. And I think I just remember that as such a potent, so sort of a potent way to, to summarize how the community, as much as you know, in, in Najoba or in Gauteng, we can kind of remember when it's the 16th of August, and on the 17th, go back to something else. Mm. That for a lot of people, that that's a daily reality. Well, I think that's, that's quite an interesting point that. Many of these uh, widows, they didn't live in Maracano or, or some of them hadn't ever been to Maracano before. A lot of them from, from the Eastern Cape, right? Uh, yeah, um, and, and, and sort of other parts, but mostly Eastern Cape. And then when their husbands died or their, their partners died, um, what often happens with, what generally happens in South Africa's mining community, if a family member dies, they'll offer the job mm. to, to another family member. Yeah, to so, keep the income. That's right. Um, so all of a sudden, these, these widows uh, have now moved to the place... Where their where, where their husbands were killed, and like you were saying, they see they see the mountain where where for so long they they held that strike, and so I think Lonman from the company's point of view, they see that as a you know we're still helping the families mm, out, a gesture and, of goodwill, yeah. and, and and they've also they're paying paying for the um, education of all the children of the mine workers who are deceased, but it's hard I think it's hard to see those factors as any serious form of justice. I mean, absolutely. I mean, Amnesty just quite recently released a really, really in-depth report about this, and we'll just chat to them shortly. So on the line, we're going to have uh, Mulea Mwananyanda, who's uh, Amnesty's international, I mean, sorry, Amnesty International's deputy director for Southern Africa. Uh, Mulea, can you hear us? Uh, yeah. Okay. I know you're also at Marikana, so I thank you for making time for us. I know there's a lot happening. Yeah. Okay. Um. So first, I'd just like to uh, to dig into the report that was uh, that was recently published, and I'd love if you could just give us uh, sort of before we even get into the report, just a general overview about housing. Why why was the why was the matter wow. of, of housing? Hello. Oh, sorry, just to cut you. I can't hear you. Sorry. Hello, Ulea. Is this any better? That, that that's better. Yeah. If you speak slowly, because there's lots of wind when you speak. It's cutting, and there's just lots of background noise. So if you speak slowly, maybe I'll be able to understand properly. Okay, perfect. Um, so I wanted to ask about the issue of housing and why why Amnesty chose to to focus on housing in this report before we get into its findings. Oh, okay, brilliant. Okay, so since 2012, Amnesty has really spoken against the uh, policing failures that led to the death uh, of 44 uh, people here in Marikana. So yeah. we've consistently spoken about that. Uh, but also, during the Fulham Commission, one of the things that I really strongly was that the core housing conditions uh, have created an environment pregnant with tension and unrest. And so we are focusing on that uh, part of the uh, Commission recommendation, and we decided to uh, really zero in on the lives of people here in Marikana. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it sounds like the report centers on, on, on something on Lonmin's social labor plan. And it sounds like that a lot of it centers around again, that. Could again, you tell- again, 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 you sound like you're a okay. bomb. <laughs> Try this again. Um, could you tell us, um, the report, um, centers on, uh, on, on Lonmin's social labor plan? Um, mm-hmm. so I'm wondering if you could just explain to us what a social labor plan in it is and why was it so central to, to, to the report and your findings? Okay, I'm not sure I heard you properly, but yes, so the, the report focuses on the right to housing yep. and 
the uh, lawman is obliged in terms of its social and labor plan to provide the housing that it said it would provide in its SLP of 2006. And in that SLP, it said that it would build 5,500 houses. Yeah. So this is in terms uh, um, of, it's also in terms of the mining charter. Mm. So for them to be able to operate, they have to prepare a, a social labor plan, which they present to the government, and they have to then oblige by the terms of the social labor plan. Longmin has not obliged to the terms of the social labor plan because they have not built the houses that they say they would build. So because they haven't done that, there should be sanctions that should follow. And in terms of the mining charter and also the Mines and uh, Mineral Resources Development Act, the Department of Mineral Resources is is um, entitled to uh, to give sanctions to companies that do not meet the terms of their social labor plan. Uh, okay, and and how have you? I know you've presented these findings to Lonman, and and how have you found their response? I mean, they're uh, they're saying that they've done a lot since uh, since no, twenty twelve and since the the findings of the commission. What's your response to that? Okay, our response to that is no, they actually haven't. And uh, part of the findings in our report is that Lonmin has 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 provided evasions and um, misleading information. So we've looked at their sustainability reports from 2005 to 2010, as well as their social and labour plans from 2006. Everything that they say they would do in those things, nothing has happened. The only thing that Longmin has done, as far as we're concerned, is the conversion of hostels and to single and family units. And it's hundreds of hostels. But by Longmin's own ad- admission, 13,500 people are still ne- in need of housing. So Longmin has failed to meet its international legal obligation to provide housing to its workers, as it said it would. Um. Thank you for that. Um, and finally, before we let you go, I just want to ask about um, uh, what do you think the role of the Department of Mineral Resources is? Um, I mean, a lot of this lawnman is a private company. Um, Seri, who we spoke with recently, non-profit organization. And a lot of this stops, you know, stops with the, with the ministry, and the Department of Mineral Resources. Mm-hmm. So what, what would you say is, is mm-hmm. going forward, what do we need to see from them to make sure that this mm-hmm. is corrected and that this doesn't happen again? Absolutely. So the Department of uh, Mineral Resources should actually provide uh, its oversight role on uh, on on Longmin, and its overall its oversight role entails that they investigate uh, what Longmin said it would do uh, against what it's done. So what the Department of Mineral Resources needs to do is to look at whether the SLP by Longmin has been fulfilled, and if it hasn't, then it is empowered in terms of the mining charter and the minerals and uh, um, and, and, and Minerals Resources Development Act to provide, uh, to, to revoke the license of, uh, of Romney if it is found to be in breach of what it said it would do. Uh, we're also calling on the Department of Mineral Resources to inc- increase the amount of resources they have to inspect some of these companies. So, for example, there were only three people in Clarkstock looking at 250 social and labor plans. And these social and labor plans are very thick documents, like an inch big. Mm. And it's, it's, uh, it's inconceivable to think that three people will look at those uh, forensically and provide the necessary oversight that is required. Um, so really the department needs to provide resources to ensure that the SLPs are adhered to. 
Okay. Uh, Muleya, thank you so much, not only for the report, yeah. but for making time to chat to us. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Okay, perfect. Um, for anyone listening in, um, that we were speaking to uh, Muleya Mwananyanda, who's the Deputy Director of Southern Africa at Amnesty International, who was a key part of putting together the report they, they put together on Amnesty, uh, not on Amnesty, on Lonmin's housing plan and the serious, serious failures by, uh, by Lonmin in executing the things that they said they were going to do. Mm. Reading the report, you just get the sense that Lonmin doesn't care that much. I mean, it's hard. It's it's hard to it's hard to see otherwise. Literally, the opening sentence is like they said they would build five thousand homes. They built three. That's so right. I mean, it's hard to it's 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 hard to move on from that. And for people, we'll we'll post a link to the. I think we have a link to the report. We'll post yeah. it on Twitter, and and we've add, we're going to be adding a new special notes page under our podcast to go from there. Okay. Fantastic. Okay, now we've just been joined in the studio by a special guest today. We've got uh, Luke Sinwell, who, with uh, Sipuwe Mabata, recently put out this book. Is it launched yet, Luke? It, it is launched. Uh, oh, that's right. Sorry, it's in stores though, right? You could just called... move close. You could just move a bit closer to your microphone. You can move it. There you go. So it's called "The Spirit of Americana: The Rise of Insurgent Trade Unionism in South Africa." And I sort of quickly went through the book over the weekend and. You know, there's been a few books out on Maracana that, that we've seen around and, and also a lot of, obviously a lot of news and, and, and media and, and decent journal, some decent journalism done. Um, but most of what we have already has focused on the week of the killings and in that week in August 2012 and then also often the aftermath, how, how the widows are doing, how the injured and arrested mine workers are doing and the, their sort of fight for justice, compensation. Um, obviously, the Farlam Commission has been a big focus. What what Luke's done with this book, I think, is provide some really interesting context around the issue of Marikana as well as other other strikes like um, at Anglo-American Platinum on the Platinum Belt. Um, I think, Luke, at the start, you say in your introduction at some point where workers' committees are one of sort of the biggest untold stories and often even even sort of purposefully hidden it seems over time um and and the book really charts this course of um where these initial demands like 12,500 rand which has become everybody knows what 125 means and what it is in South Africa now but you actually went back and found out where that came from you found the guys and you found the their their methods of organizing and that's what you've written about in this book or that's what you sort of start off with in the earlier chapters why did you why did you choose to focus on some of these periphery actors or, or at least periphery in 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 the public's um sort of knowledge of Marikana? Yeah. why did you focus on these issues uh well my previous work actually uh focuses on social movements and popular protests and the individuals uh, who make up, uh, those organizations, those social movements. I had previously mostly looked at, uh, service delivery protests, which take similar forms because you'll know that when there's an actual contentious action, uh, like a protest or it could be a burning of schools or it could be the shooting of an activist like Andres Titani and Fixburg, there's actually a series of events, uh, that happen well before that. Sometimes it can be days, weeks and months or even years that you can trace back. So I at least wanted to, to put the historical moment of the massacre 
into context and not just focus only at, on the massacre, which is, you know, incredibly uh, important, but also to look at some of the, the earlier figures uh, who I, you know, think are actually heroic figures who are key uh, in transforming elements of the politics of the country. I think that's what that's what I really liked about reading this book is that we know about sort of that week in August 2012 when the strikes really sort of got underway. Most of us only know about it once they got violent. But tell us about the – there are just a few guys. If we, if we talk about Maracana and Lonman in particular, there are a few guys who actually just sort of decided that they deserve more money and they started talking to other guys and sort of that's how this thing built. Tell us about that, how that process actually built up in Maracana. So every social movement uh, has leaders and every social movement has distinct origins. Uh, so in this case, um, we think of uh, the Association of Mine Workers and Construction Union. Obviously, we think of Joseph Matundra. Uh, we also think of Mambush. Uh, Mambush became involved uh, at a later stage. Which everybody in the public often knows as the man in the green blanket. Exactly. By the time uh, the workers had come to the mountain... Um, so in fact, so there was AMCU, which, which was present in the mines, particularly at this Karee shaft, which is where the 12,500 originated. And then you actually, uh, in the commission, in some of the reports, uh, that were put forward to the commission, you can find these people's names, uh, um, uh, Makabini and also Mufu Keng, uh, having Mike DaCosta, he was one of the managers at Karee shaft having conversations with these individuals. Uh, but we spent as much time as possible, uh, with the mine workers. Uh, at first we were just in contact with the normal, uh, with the workers committee. Okay. In the book, we call it the committee of the mountain. Um, that was the, the one that was still on the mountain besides the ones who were actually killed by the police, uh, on 16 August, like, uh, the man in the green blanket. So we went to that group. But, and we, you know, we studied them. We tried to, we had to try to understand the sociology of the massacre. But then we spent, you know, the next year trying to go back in time, uh, trying to talk to as many people as possible until we could actually identify, um, and, and until we actually found, you know, that the, tw the 12,500 wasn't something that was first discussed at a mass meeting. Uh, but it was actually about a conversation that one worker uh, was having with another worker about wage uh, increases. And in fact, one of the, the workers comes from the National Union of Mine Workers and the other comes from uh, AMCU. So the whole idea that this could have been considered to be interunion rivalry is actually uh, entirely false. Uh, there's no basis for that. In fact, you could call it the opposite of interunion rivalry because workers put aside their union affiliation in order to unite, you know, for the living wage of 12,500. Mm -hmm. What, so, so you've mentioned some of these, if we're talking about Lonman, some of these actors that, who came up with these figures and they sort of, I think it was, uh, Moffat King who you mentioned, he was explaining at your launch on the weekend how, he came up with a figure of 12,500 and it's, it was fascinating just to hear the breakdown. So he, he was making about 5,000, am I right? And then he doubled that, put a bit extra on top, another 50% on top to, to say this is sort of what we think we should take to management or, or demand. And hopefully we'll get, you know, maybe about 10 after, after the negotiations. Mm -hmm. But what conditions were there at Lonman for these to spread? Because we, we've mentioned that there was Amku there, there was the National Union of Mine Workers. 
Um, how how did this become? How did this become so popular? How did this um, sort of gain traction uh, in the hearts of other mine workers when when we already have unions who are supposed to represent these interests? That's a very important question. So the structural conditions to an extent needed to be intact in order for leadership to have an effect on the other rank and file uh, workers that they were actually working uh, underground with. And obviously one of the main factors um, that uh, was actually uh, put in play was that the National Union of Mine Workers was increasingly viewed as a union that was in the pockets of management. But in addition to that, in the specific shaft where the 12,500 actually originated, the the shaft at that time was divided between NUM uh, and AMCU. So the workers who were at the forefront of that action decided that if they went with unions, uh, it was actually going to divide the workers. Uh, so they couldn't, they decided not to go with the unions. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, one of the other factors was a line of sight strategy that was put in place, uh, by lawnmen after the 2000, there was a 2011 unprotected strike, uh, which was also, which was around union leadership. Actually, it was around the NUM, um, uh, which led to the firing of, um, I think it's about 11,000 mine workers, and that's where AMPCU actually came in. But they put in a line of sight strategy uh, that said, "We, where the management said, we will engage directly with mine workers without their unions being present. And then management, in fact, did engage uh, on a number of occasions with leaders of mine workers who weren't associating to any union. Mm -hmm. And then later, uh, you could see, uh, in the lead up to the Maricana massacre, there was no representative whatsoever who would actually go to speak with the mine workers. So the management actually set a precedent with the mine workers. Mm-hmm. And then when people were li- when people's lives were at stake, they refused to even negotiate with the men who were on the mountain waiting for the living wage demand that they had originally negotiated about. One of the fascinating points in your book as well is when you describe the point where I think Mike DaCosta, who was the manager of that shaft, am I right, um, took, took some of these demands to, to management and, and was told that, no, obviously we can't, we're not going to give them 12,500, but what we can do is give them an allowance of, I think, at the moment, 750 rand a month with another 250 promised, um, to, to help um, balance up the wages that were disproportionate between some of the dif- different mine workers or, or different rock drill operators at different shafts, I think. But I, I found it so interesting the the effect that that had on the mine workers' psyche wasn't necessarily to say, "Oh, great, we got we got we're getting an extra thousand yeah, a bit more month. money." Yeah, yeah, it, it actually sort of emboldened them, made them push for more demands. Yeah, another, if I can just add quickly that, um, those people, uh, in Karee Shaft, the rock drill operators in particular, who, you know, formulated the demand for 12,500, were underground, and unlike the other shafts, uh, when they were drilling, they didn't have an assistant. So this was one of the factors where they thought that compared to the other shafts, they were actually being oppressed or exploited more. Mm-hmm. But I think by the time that, uh, DaCosta had given the, 
the 750 increase, my understanding of uh, what we've tried to uncover there is that the idea of 12,500 was already inscribed into the minds of uh, the mine workers. And we also think, uh, based upon the evidence that we have, because uh, we had to reconstruct events because uh, based upon oral histories, because there's no documents actually, well, there's very limited documents that actually deal with the construction of the social of the social movement mm-hmm. or the workers uh, committee. But what we were able to gather is that the 750 that the management offered actually led the workers to think that management does have money in their coffers. Mm-hmm. They also said, according to one of the mine workers who was part of this uh, initial workers committee, that we can't negotiate with one shaft, Karee. Because then the other shafts will also want 16,000. They'll also want 10,000. They'll also want 15,000. So the mine workers left a meeting where management told them that. And then they went and recruited the other rock drill operators from the, the other two shafts. And that's when you saw the mass meeting of rock drill operators, which, uh, began, which led to strike action on the 9th of August, 2012, a week before the Maricana massacre. Now, like I said, your book doesn't necessarily, it's not, it's core focus is not the week of that, that massacre and that week, but you actually sum it up really well in, in, and sort of quite a short amount of time. If anyone actually wants to understand about Manukana and the massacre there, I think you do a really good job of sort of condensing it. I, I imagine how hard was it to talk about Manukana without going so into depth with these, these issues of the massacre and the police responsibility and, and the bullet ridden bodies? Well, especially in the days immediately following the massacre when I was there with the South African Research Chair in Social Change, uh, with the director there, Peter Alexander, who initiated a team of people to go there. And then I was also with a number of other people, including uh, Tapelo Lechoa, who you know, mm-hmm. who's done some work with the Daily Maverick. Um, it was impossible to ignore the massacre. And we went, the first thing we did uh was go and meet with the workers committee uh, on the ground there and engage with them. And over time, they gave us some details about the funerals. And we, you know, we mourned and grieved uh, with the mine workers and their families because there was nothing else that you could do if you were with the mine workers during that time. So some of the edginess four years later obviously will have fallen off compared to the immediate two-week period when you're about to mourn with your loved ones and when you're trying to figure out uh, what happened. Um, but one of the things we wanted to do uh, with this book and with the research, and even increasingly so as we continue, because this this project hasn't ended. It's just one. It's just one book that we were able to complete uh, within this time. But is to talk about you know the the mine workers not only as victims of uh, capital exploitation, as victims of police brutality, but also as the heroic figures that we believe and understand that they are because of the role that they played uh, in shaping the course of the country's politics. And and I think one of the key points as well is that you make you make certain in this book that the heroes aren't just the ones we know from the photographs. There are other guys and many more people who have have added to this. But so obviously today is the commemoration of the massacre and four years ago the shootings occurred. But for these worker committees, it didn't stop then, did it? 
they they continued on on strike at Lonman, and then later on it spread to Umplatz, and then also the strikes spread around to the mining industry in general. But how do you see the success of these working committees? Because they did get huge increases. How do you view their organizing sort of successes now in retrospect? Well, the, there's different forms of success that the committees, which, and when you're talking about the worker committees, I think it has to be understand that, understood that they were, as we've written about them and as we understand them, is that they were democratic. So they were led by, driven by, and intimately linked to uh, the rank-and-file workers, without which they couldn't have been uh, successful. So, for example, the committee, if you talk about success, you can talk about heroic moments uh, when the mine workers, you know, didn't fall victim. Actually, they didn't fall victim to the Maricana massacre. They stood up and became more powerful. Uh, from that evening and that morning of the 17th August, they continued to unite all the different shafts at Lawnman. And then obviously they spread a strike wave, you know, across the industry and across uh, other industries as well. And then that strike actually continued under the banner of the union. The mm-hmm. workers committee brought in AMCU, the, the rank and file even if you don't talk about the workers committee you're talking about the the strength of the workers the strength of the workers themselves as opposed to a committee mm. but they led the longest strike in south african mining history the 2014 under under the banner of amku mm-hmm. the rank and file with the same kind of politics that the committees and the individuals in 2012 created that mufu kang and and uh bulelani makabeni had introduced the 12500 they mm-hmm. they they had a conversation with the workers that that idea spread and then when workers died on the mountain, a year and a half later, they united again for that same demand and with the same kind of politics. And hence, you saw the relentless strike uh, of 2014 only ending after five months with uh, victories uh, uh, for the mine workers. Has, now that Uncle's taken, sort of absorbed many of these either the working committees or some of them perhaps some members of these certain working committees but but much of the rank and file across the platinum belt has uncle been able to maintain sort of the such democratic principles and principles of sort of inclusiveness and openness because obviously one of the reasons for these issues you know one of the factors was the failures of unions in the first place is it is uncle the answer has it been able to be more successful than where where the National Union of Mine Workers let down workers and often even victimized them. Yeah, AMCU um, needs to be understood as something that came uh, into power essentially on the back of a militant insurgency. That's why actually why we call it. Um, the rise of insurgent trade unionism in just, South Africa. Just for listeners, Luke had to look at the name, look at the title of the book that I'm holding just to remember it. I was a bit worried. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which book is that again? You did write this, right? I hope so. <laughs> oh, sorry, go on. Um, so yeah, the, the union came in on the back of an insurgency, but so the union has different elements. It, it was a pre-existing organization that had a certain kind of politics. Mm. It grew out of the NUM, in fact, uh, in the late 1990s and the early 2000s when it was established by a group of workers, 
uh, and leading uh, shop stewards, including Joseph Matundra. But it took on some of the same characteristics um, of the NUM um, in terms of uh, leadership style. But at the same time, it was willing to address uh, the workers' some of the, the workers concerned, the workers' concerns. But when the workers' committee uh, joined AMCU, there were problems between the workers' committee and the national executive committee or the politics of AMCU. But they did manage to iron them out to the extent that they were able to collectively lead under the banner of AMCU um, this long strike, except one of the things that has happened... Um, is that the workers' committees, um, this is almost a natural phenomenon that the workers' committees, which were created to be temporary things, uh, to address, uh, the employer about wage demands, uh, actually died down, um, you know, in 2013 as we witnessed, um, the, the workers joining AMCU en masse from, actually from, from 2012, after the, the, the Impala strike set the unprotected strike wave underway early, that's when workers started joining AMCU. And then, uh, the nail in the coffin, or maybe I shouldn't say that, the straw that broke the camel's back, you know, was the Maricana massacre. Mm-hmm. Also, the workers believing, you'll remember when the workers marched to their union a few days before the Maricana massacre. Uh, they were shot at by NUM f- officials and many believe that workers had died and they actually drew a line in the sand between them and the NUM. The workers said that because that, you know, they were actually running to the mountain in fear, not of the police, mm-hmm. but that the NUM would be attacking them. They said that's why, you know, I actually understand and believe that that's why they ran to the mountain. Four years on, Maracana means so many different things to so many different people. Um, are you, do you have, an, does it still make you emotional when you think about these things or, or that you've invested so much time in Maracana, um, so much of your career? Do you, do you sort of see it with clear eyes as an academic understanding? I think it's impossible, uh, to see Maracana objectively or from, a, let me say from a neutral political, uh, standpoint because people, have died so that you can't be neutral on a train that is moving if there's a commission of inquiry that is set up uh to to say who's guilty for the 34 killing of the mine workers and then no one is actually found guilty mm. no one is prosecuted and in fact nothing happens uh and the the mine workers are dead their families are still suffering i heard you guys saying earlier on that uh some of the widows are actually being pl- employed at lawnmen yeah. in order to be exploited by the same company um that's guilty of actually being involved in killing the mine workers so I think it's impossible to see it neutrally and only in a scholarly fashion where we pretend to be uh, objective. But, but I don't feel the same way that I, that I felt about Maracana for the first year or so and definitely for the first few weeks. Um, and in some ways, you know, the, the project that I'm involved in undertaking, in undertaking, um, is about moving beyond, you know, the sadness, you know, and the ways in which, um, the, the people who are massacred were subjected 
to violence and looking at people's agency and what people did and what people can do to change their circumstances and the circumstances of others. That's why I'm not only sad, but I think there are certain things about Americana that we can, in fact, celebrate even today, you know, especially on the four-year commemoration of the Americana. Um, yeah, sorry, Greg, if you mind me jumping in here. Um, I'm curious about the uh, the role of women. Um, this is something that often sort of gets left behind, and we mentioned it now with some of the, the, the widows and families of the slain mine workers. And I'm curious especially about this organization called Sikala Sonke that was part of um, sort of the sort of the sort of collective action that we saw during the protest. And I'm wondering if you could just speak about that and the role of women in, in also speaking out about the injustice that they, they were witnessing. Um, I wish I had uh, Bridget Indibongo right next right next to me because she did her uh, thesis on the women of Americana and what they did uh, for the mine worker strikes of 2012 and 2014. So I think at some point we'll have to also call her. Oh, absolutely. Um, but uh, I'll just say that, uh, you know, the women didn't sit back and do nothing. Um, I'm not just talking about the women mine workers, but um, the, the actual community members on the very... On, at the very moment, uh, when some of the women, you can talk about people like Primrose Santi, yeah. who formed Sakala Sonke, we are all crying. They didn't sit back, they didn't tremble, they didn't panic. They, they, they also became leaders and they also had agency. So when they heard about what was happening, they literally went to the police to find out. And they gave solidarity through the, the unprotected strike of 2012 with the mine workers. Um, and they became part of the commission of inquiry to mm. understand why their brothers, uh, why their husbands had been killed. Um, and they, they played an important role also in 2014, uh, during that five month strike, uh, when people were coming close to starving. It was a long strike. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about families, um, we're talking about breadwinners of families, you know, the mine workers in some cases who look after 10 or 15 people in two different households, one in a rural area like the Eastern Cape, another in, uh, Rustenburg. So when they weren't able to actually get any food, uh, for those five months, it meant their families weren't able to get any food. And again, the women didn't sit back and wait, but they, they activated themselves and they became in, involved in the immediate process of uh, trying to, trying to raise funds and trying to make, make a situation in which people could actually put food on the table for their families. So I cut you off, Greg. No, uh, that's fine. <laughs> you do it all the time. <laughs> Sorry, so, look, you finished the postscript in your book with the words, the masses must be ready to go. What is also essential is that leaders must be prepared to lead them. Do you, and you've called your book, um, The Rise of Insurgent Trade Union, Unionism in South Africa. Do you believe that, that what you've found out about how the Madakana struggles were organized, about strongly challenging for the demands that people believe that they deserve and that they should have do you believe it's like what you've seen it's going to spread it's going to it is a rise of insurgent trade unionism we're going to see communities as well as workers continuing to stand up even even more for their sort of demands i do think you know politically that we're going to see that but it's it's hard to tell because there'll be uneven processes where you you can't predict exactly what's going to happen. You know, we may be seeing a rise in service delivery protests, 
a rise in certain uh, trade unions mobilizing. But on the other hand, we could be seeing uh, spaces actually closing. Um, so I'm just saying it's not that straightforward. But the, the point of how um, I wanted to get people to understand is for own for for individuals to see their own agency and to see, you know, the, the sort of political economy approach, the structural approach begins to indicate that if people are oppressed or if people are, you know, downtrodden or the structural conditions of capitalism are exploiting them, that they will actually resist. So I was trying to tell the story of how I un understand Maracana in order to get people to see uh, the significance of their own agency in life, because if you don't do something, nobody else will. I mean, I mean, we definitely couldn't put it better than that. We're just running out of time. I just wanted to say, this is my final question. Where can people get the book? And also you mentioned it's part of a sort of a wider, wider um, sequence of projects or wider projects. If you could just explain that shortly. Well, you can get the book, Vitz Press says, at all good bookstores. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Pluto Press also has it available, you know, in different parts of the world, uh, especially in the United States and the United Kingdom. So I think, I think you should be able to find the book. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to make it cheaper. <laughs> I'm also going to have a launch in, uh, Rustenburg. And then the other question you're asking, um, will take me a minute. Okay. Um, well, this was part of a, a broader, um, a broader research project that I had been involved with around agency and around service delivery protests, around workers' organizations. Then it became Maracana and the Massacre. And then obviously I had to look at the, the social movement that the book is about. Um, but I, I really, I think that the significant thing is about reading, writing, getting people to read, write, and study heroic figures who have been written out of history into history. And I think we need to get more mind workers uh, to write. All the books have been written about that have been written about the mind workers. Obviously, I don't think any of them have been about the mind workers. And okay, I was also at when I was at the book launch and I heard one of the mind workers speak, uh, the man who formulated the demand for 12,500. You could just sense this, the, the person within him. There was something that was so personal about what he was saying. Because he, he was just being honest and talking about, he actually said he hated himself. For starting all this. Yeah, for, oh. for starting it all. Look, I'm so sorry I'm going to have to cut you off. We've just run out of time. You just haven't been able to finish this. But for everybody tuning in, please get the book Spirit of Marikana, Rise of Insurgent Trade Unionism, and we'll make sure to get Luke on again in the future. Thank you for making time for us. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. I'm sorry we had to sort of rush to finish. At Only Heather, congratulations. We will DM you the details. Thank you. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.